Tyler Smiley. And I'm John Morrison. And this is the Rooted and Grounded Podcast. Rooted and Grounded is a ministry of Lakewood Baptist Church that creates theological content to grow the church and our knowledge of God in order that we will grow in our love for Him and for our neighbor. Check out more at rootedandgrounded.co. Love for our neighbors is a pretty good one to go with for today. It's a good reminder. Are we supposed to love our neighbors? I think we should. Huh, this keeps coming up in the Bible, doesn't it? Like, as if it's important. As if it might be a summary of the whole law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's good theology. That, that would... It come, coming from the lips of God himself, I think. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. Uh, it's a good reminder. Jesus, not you, just to be clear. That's right. If there was any confusion. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The words of Jesus. The words of Jesus. Okay. That's a good reminder. Um, man, we got a lot of good things to talk about today. I'm excited about this one. What are we talking about? We're talking about First Peter. You do love First Peter, I don't really you? do. It's growing. Every time I read it, it grows on me more and more. Is that why you named your son Peter? Partially. Yeah. Um, started to love this, this letter even more. Um, really dug into it right around the time before our third son was born and mm-hmm. boy we just said this is this is it plus we we went with andrew with our oldest son so we knew if we keep having boys that we ought to consider the name peter i mean andrew peter the brother right. thing right so that'd just be a good that so that's another sort of tick in the plus column for, for yeah. that one then you get the other one, just the tax collector. Is he really a brother? I mean, Nobody poor knows. middle son. <laughs> I mean, if you keep going, though, are you going to get all 12? And then how do you decide who gets who has to be Judas? Well, we've got... <laughs> we may do Judas, but if we name him Judas, it's got to be Jewish in, per, in parentheses, not Iscariot. Okay. Like okay. the Bible does yes. in several different places. Yeah. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. There was another Judas. Yeah. You could do Paul. Could do yeah, Paul. Just one abnormally well, we've born. We've got Andrew James. Oh wow, you're really doubling up. So you don't really only need six. We've got Peter Thomas. Yes. And and Matthew, his middle name's David. So we've still got the, the strong Bible name there, but not strong a, middle name. It's a good middle name, isn't mm. it? You would like that one. Mm. And but we don't have the other disciple in there. But it's you know, so I feel like we've got five knocked out already. And you know, I don't I don't think we need to keep going. Well, like, you're not getting any younger. Well, let's let some other people step up to the plate and name some of the well, disciples. But they wouldn't be smileys. <laughs> That's true. Just something to think about. Maybe my grandchildren. Maybe your grandchildren. Maybe round out the full full posse of disciples. So first Peter other, chapter two. Oh, we're gonna say oh, oh go ahead. You got something I was just curious say. if other famous Peters in history. Uh Peter Martyr. P- mm. Peter uh Vermig uh what is it? Vermigli? Peter mm-hmm. Martin Vermigli? Good. Peter Lombard. Peter Lombard. That's a good yeah. one. Um, the the Apostle. The You know, that's where we started. Well, I think we started with that one. So, yeah. who else? More recently, Peter Marshall. Yeah. Chaplain. Peter Marshall. The chaplain the to chaplain. Congress. Yeah. That's right. Uh, Peter O'Brien? No. Yeah. Is that the, the uh, biblical scholar? Is it Peter O'Brien? I believe so. I'm pretty sure. Peter Lightheart. Peter Lightheart's another one. We've really gone more modern now. Although it's not as like common of a name anymore. 
And you don't hear it a lot now. Hmm. Do you? Good question. Well, let's let the audience decide for themselves. Uh, I think they should email Kevin with their favorite Peters from history. They should. We'll yeah. probably miss some, although we can't have missed many. <laughs> so, if you had any more suggestions, just send them our way. We'd love to read them. Your favorite Peter throughout church history. One of my favorites is First Peter. Well, <laughs> the the OG Peter, <laughs> and uh, the letter he wrote, First Peter, and especially chapter two, which is the topic of our last sermon, wisdom from a pastor's heart. We're hearing from Doctor Tom as he's preaching these uh, last couple weeks, preaching the next few weeks, and his life verse, as it turns out, which he shared on Sunday, was is First Peter two fifteen. And uh, if you've missed that sermon, you can go back and listen to it at lakewoodlife.org. Find all the sermon in the archive. But uh, 1 Peter 2.15, it's a great, great verse. What is... Okay, you want to read it? Why don't you read it so we're all on the same page? For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So the first, first question I think I have about this verse is when he says, by doing good. For by doing good. This is the will of God. For this is the will of God, by doing mm-hmm. good. So, let's set the context. Before you answer that question, let's set the context. Peter's talking to a group of Christians that have been scattered, um, and he and many of them are facing persecution. That seems to be a very common theme throughout this letter. Mm-hmm. When you face yes. difficulties and trials and persecutions, you should look to Christ, is ultimately what he'll say. Um, but uh, it, he really sets their minds on the inheritance that is theirs. Mm-hmm. So when you see that on earth you have little by way of comfort, there is an, a, uh, an eternal and heavenly imperishable inheritance that awaits those who persevere in the Lord. So look to him. So in the midst of this, which seems to be governmental persecution, Mm-hmm. At least, if not only that, and maybe it's not completely organized as organized or, or clean cut as that, but it does right. seem to be that sort of oppression or persecution that the Christians are facing that he's writing to. So, in light of that, when he says "do good," what does he what does he mean? What does he mean by "do good"? We all have our different understandings of what it means to do good. Well, I mean, if you go back to where this paragraph starts in verse thirteen. It seems like the big thing is submitting, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So this part of doing good is being subject to every human institution, submitting to human authorities that are in your life. And then as he keeps going, as that sort of paragraph rounds out, it's about honoring everyone. Love, Love the church, fear God, honor the emperor. And then he goes into a section on the need to suffer well. So it's submitting to those in authority, showing honor and to everyone, loving the church, and then suffering well for doing the right thing is what it means to do good. Mm. Uh, not the most encouraging verse, as it turns out. <laughs> uh, hey, here's a, here's a human institution, a Roman government that wants you uh, to persecute you and to stamp out your religion. And so why don't you submit to them, Mm. continue to honor the emperor, who at least at different points will insist that you worship him as God, Mm -hmm. uh, 
is a pagan idolatrous person who wants again wants to see your faith crushed so honor him and then when you get beaten make sure you're getting beaten and you're suffering for actually doing the right thing not for being hmm. uh, a lawbreaker or a rule breaker hmm. so that'll that just brightens my day it right there just brightens you right up in the middle of an election season very fun to talk about huh and and that's I mean that's the intentional difficulty I think about what Peter's saying. Yes, like there is a life that Christians are called to, regardless of the circumstances that they're facing. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is how um, this is what Christians believe. I mean that that's certainly in, all in the background here of what it means to be a Christian, mm-hmm. to be in Christ, to put your trust and faith and hope in Him. But then there comes with that a particular lifestyle that's expected with those who are believing in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you're facing, you're called to live a particular type of way. And I think it's interesting to think about how this plays out in church history for the next hundred years, that Christianity grows as as Christians are suffering and being persecuted and enduring hardships. It actually grows, and it grows because of the good they're doing. So I think about... um, you know, Rodney Stark has that book about the rise of Christianity, and he looks at these different factors. But he, he starts to list things like, well, it was the way they cared for orphans. Mm-hmm. Those who were set out to be killed and just to be exposed and die, well, they took them in and cared for them. Mm-hmm. It was the way they actually treated women as people that drew many women to the faith because they actually had, they were treated as fellow image bearers of God. Mm-hmm. It's the way they opposed uh yeah, sort of the Roman culture of death in the Colosseums with the death penalty, all those things with the death mm-hmm. penalty, all those things they were opposed to to promote life. The way they treated people who were sick, the way they cared for the sick in. when the plague, mm-hmm. that all those things, this good that they did, was part along with you know the proclaiming of the gospel and the transformation that happened. The good that they did is one of the reasons that Christianity actually grew. Mm-hmm. And I think to me that's one of the helpful things to keep in mind with this is that. I don't think the promise here in verse 15 is a short-term thing. Hmm. I mean, and I think that came out a little bit on, on Sunday with some of your dad's personal examples. Turns out, well, doesn't doing good doesn't often silence people in the short term. Right. Right. I mean, you can do the right thing. You can help people and it may not be noticed. And if it's noticed, you may be uh, attributing wrong motives. But in but in the long run, mm. if we as a church, if we don't see this, I think, so individualized, mm. but we see it as this is what we as a church are going to do generation after generation, uh, year after year, whatever, that then over time, that's what adorns the gospel with these good works. Well, I think it's so key what you just described there about the communal aspect of this passage, because it is intended as that. It is mm-hmm. intended to say to the church together. This is how certainly you individually ought to live, but you together ought to live. And when uh, the emperors or the rulers or the political authorities of the day were talking about these people, they were talking about the Christians, you know, as if it's the group that they meant. And we all know that when there are people who are affiliated with a group, their actions individually reflect communally on the whole group. So whether we like it or not, if we're labeled a Christian and someone does something who also is labeled a Christian, well, we've just now got baggage that we've got to deal with. 
I should go ahead and apologize to you for being that <laughs> you have to be associated with me at this point. So, but neither yeah. here nor there. I mean, maybe that's part of the reason he says love the brotherhood. I mean, you just think about each of the yes as he really unpacks this: do good, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I mean, all of these other commands that are that are coming along with it. It's just as if to say you collectively are called to this. And I think we ought to remember that our actions don't mm. only affect and reflect on who we are individually. They reflect on on the fact that we are associating ourselves with Jesus Christ. So yeah. you, you can't just take it individually. I think you have to consider the the communal implications. And maybe that's also to your point about how you start to see the problem when you say the promise that's in this text, mm-hmm. I think you really mean that it will eventually it will put to silence the ignorance of those who don't know Christ who are opposing God's people. So by our doing good, by our living like we ought to, as a community of God's people, as the church, mm-hmm. um, in time, eventually, we just say, we know that the Lord will show himself to be true. We know that right. that the ignorance and the foolishness of those who don't know will be silenced because Christ will reign. And what you were mentioning earlier about our identity together, I think verse 16 brings out so well as this call to live as servants or to live as slaves of God, which is just this great juxtaposition. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as slaves of God. So honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And so that identity, whose we are, matters so much in this passage. And it doesn't, I mean, I think about be subject to every human institution. It doesn't say be subject because, you know what, the Roman Empire, great group of guys. You know, they're really doing a great job. They're keeping things in order. But it says, no, be subject for the Lord's sake. And over and over again, it's about how our relationships to others, how our relationships to human institutions are shaped by the fact that we belong to God, which is really, I mean, if I'm honest, I don't think about it. Those aren't my natural terms for thinking about, well, I need to be a faithful, good citizen because that's for the Lord's sake. Right. Or I need to honor everyone, show honor to everyone because I'm a slave of God. Mm. Uh, I forget, I have a tendency to forget that my human relationships should be shaped by the fact that I belong to God. I was telling you earlier that I was working on an article that uh, takes some of John Calvin's sermons and starts to apply them uh, to help pastors and and, uh, others in the church. But one of the... Were you surprised that he was helpful to pastors? I think pastors would be surprised that he was helpful to them and the circumstances with which he was helpful. But that's a conversation for a different day. Um, Because some in the room... Were not surprised. ...might think that you ought not be surprised that he has something helpful to say. But there may be some who are surprised. So let's just stick with that. One of the things that he talked about in these sermons on 2 Timothy... You know, just side note, I'm okay. just upset that you're not writing this article for the website whose podcast you are now recording. Can I dual publish it? That's fine with me. If I give you the the better, fuller edition, maybe I do two editions, mm-hmm. and I give you the longer one. 
Great. Okay. So in Second Timothy, Calvin <laughs> talks sidebars about, over. All right, back to about back this. to the podcast. Um, uh, about fearing God. Okay. There's a section he has about what it means to fear God, and Peter mm-hmm. talks about that in this letter. Yes. Right. Um, this is the will of God by doing good. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, et cetera, et cetera. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Mm. Honor the emperor. And that phrase is that that phrase really captures me because in the stream of things, for instance, honor the emperor. You think, well, to your point earlier, what if this is a horrible person who really wants to stamp out everything that I stand for, and I'm called to honor this person? But yet in the midst of that is this very clear call, I think that supersedes almost everything else in the passage, fear God. And what Calvin said is actually very helpful. He said there are two ways that this usually plays itself out, fear of God, in two different ways. Number one... This fear of recognizing who God really is often causes people to flee from God. Because mm. we, we recognize that this is the true and eternal judge of right and wrong. And and it can't that fear can actually reject people. But the true fear of God is a recognition of who we are ourselves and the goodness of God as our true judge. Mm. So that fear, this sort of secondary, when you get past the causes me to flee from God, as Calvin outlines it, there's another deeper fear of God that actually causes us to recognize who we are, our own faults, and out of this sober-minded recognition, it will actually draw us towards Him, because we'll recognize our need for Him Mm. and His goodness. But I thought it was really helpful to think about how the fear of God would set the tone for our lives. And Calvin has this great quote, he said, no one can wean us from this world unless we are made to fear. No one can wean us from this world unless we're made to fear. And what he's really getting at is that in all of us, by nature, in sin, there is a, an inclination towards the desires of this world. And we will always gravitate towards those things unless we have reason not to. Mm-hmm. And once we come to the recognition of who we are ourselves and who God really is, what I think, Scripture talks about as fearing him, a holy, worshipful, honoring. Uh, Calvin will describe this as a hallowing of God, giving him the full glory. I mean, when we get to that point, then we start to see how all of our life really fits in under that one call, fear God. And it will cause us to reject the ways of the world, to live in a way that honors God for his sake and not for our own. And that's... That's so helpful, this idea that we have to be weaned from the world. Because you start, re- you keep reading in First Timothy 2, and he gets into suffering. Hmm. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Hmm. For to this you have been called, that it, to suffer. You have been called to suffer. We have been called to suffer because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. So you realize you, you have to be, we have to be weaned from the things of this world. We have to see that it is better. Our desires have to be changed from this world to the things of God. You know, as Paul talks about in Galatians, from the thing, the desires of the flesh to the desires of the spirit. And it's only then that we can be willing to suffer for Christ. And that those idols of comfort and ease and security and all those things that we think we have to have are slayed. But 
because we rightly see who God is and who we are from that. When we're living in a way that we believe is really honoring God and we're doing good and we we don't see the results on earth that we hope to see, mm. what keeps us motivated to persevere in that way of life? What keeps us motivated to persevere? I, I think it's the joy and the pleasure of life with God <laughs> that when we truly see that it is better to have God and to have the life he offers us than it is to have the things of this world, then we're not so concerned about the results. We're not so concerned about the outworking in this life because we know that in spite of everything, that through the grace of God, we actually can share in the love that the Father has for his Son that he pours out through his Spirit in Mm. our hearts. Like, we have that. So we can suffer as Christ suffered because we now share in the very life of God. Yeah. Uh, which I think Peter, is it here? No, it's in, it's in Second Peter. Anyways, mm-hmm. that we are partakers of the divine nature. Right. Is that in Second Peter? I think it may be. Then he has Second Peter 2.14. That mm-hmm. we are actually sharing, that God has so poured out his love for us in Christ and through the Spirit that we are now being conformed to the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. And we get... That's who we have. We have God himself. Yeah. So we we need nothing else. Mm. Yeah, he says in the very beginning of this letter that we're called to a living hope. Mm. First Peter 1, we're called to a living hope. And with that comes an inheritance that is un, undefiled, unfading. Um, there's another, there's three of those. Undefiled, unfading, and imperishable. I think that's mm. it. That's kept for you in heaven, right? Yes. Uh, you know, that can be hard to remind yourself of maybe when the circumstances of life are going very well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think that's that's sort of across the board for everybody. Yeah, it's actually more difficult to remember your this imperishable hope when you don't when you're perfectly happy and content with right. this world. Right. Yeah. There may not be anything drawing you to hope for something better or to look for something yeah. better. But by God's grace, from time to time, we we do. We do face that. And especially, I think, if Peter seems to be writing in a context where the church was facing those difficult times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think if you... And, and so he says, because you're facing this, let me, let me tell you how to live. Live like this. But I do think, for most people, the inverse of that would even be true. Like, if you really lived like this, you would you would get all kinds of... Um, difficulties and and struggles. I think in this life, mm-hmm. like d- when you live like a a Christian ought to live, which in so many ways rejects the ways of the world, you'll at least get raised eyebrows and questions and wonderings. Why did you do that? Why why weren't you willing to do the things we're willing to do? Right, whatever it may be, it may actually living like this may actually bring upon you persecution because of how you live. That you know, if you just right stayed in the ways of the world, you would never face. So having that hope, I think, is just a great reminder for us of what we have in Christ, having that life. But Peter seems to give several different ways. I mean, you you gave a, a great one there of what motivates us. Certainly, being filled with God's Spirit holds us 
tight to Christ. Yes. I mean, that's the yeah. that's sort of the way, the power by which we do that. But Peter calls you to look to Christ who mm-hmm. suffered, the righteous one who truly suffered for us. Uh, he calls our minds to the hope, look to Christ, to trust the the work of the Spirit in us, to continue to cleanse us. So it's just a good reminder that this call to do good may actually bring upon us the need to stay motivated to do good. It's not as if doing good will lead to a really good life. But it puts, when we fear God, like you brought out earlier, it puts everything in its proper perspective. Mm -hmm. So that the things that you might fear losing or be concerned about uh, other people's opinions, the raised eyebrow you talked about, like, yeah. Who really cares what Jimbo thinks about you when you know that the one true and living God is looking upon you as a son he's mm. adopted in and through Christ who is a joint heir mm. so that you are a joint heir with him. So do we want to please Jimbo or do we want to please the one true and living God? Yeah, that's right. And it just it starts to put these things in perspective. And so Paul can say that that we that this eternal weight of glory far, far surpasses these light and momentary troubles in this world. And those light and momentary troubles are nothing that we would say is light and momentary. Mm-hmm. And yet, right. compared to the eternal weight of glory, they're nothing. And so the fearing God that you, you brought out puts it all in the right perspective. Hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, do we want to live as servants of our God or not, right? Well, yeah, and that's yeah. that's exactly what Peter will say throughout this. I mean, he, in, in verse 3, he even comes back to the same thing when he says that it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yes. Right? As if to say, if you do good, you may face consequences in this life. If you do and a good being defined by God right. for his sake mm-hmm. and who God is. Mm-hmm. So what he says is good, not just what makes us feel good, not what looks good in the eyes of the world, not just what will get the applause of man, but what is good in God's eyes. If we do that, it's better to suffer for doing that than it is to suffer either the consequences of our evil doing when mm-hmm. we stand before God the judge, or, in just another way, like the fact that sometimes we face consequences for the evil we do on this earth. Right. So, I mean, so do good as God defines it, and if you face consequences on earth because of that, well, you've done good. And we should, if that's God's will, Peter says it again, this is the will of God, he says in 2.15, in 3.17, if that's God's will, then we should we should be okay with that. Why? Well, because Christ suffered. He suffered as one who had done truly good, mm-hmm. the righteous, even for the unrighteous, even for us. While, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's the idea. So even when we suffer for doing good, we're reminded that Christ, the truly righteous one, suffered for doing good, the right thing to honor God, even for those who were far from God, who are unrighteous. So maybe there's even uh, an evangelistic motive that keeps us doing good, like do the right thing, because in your well-doing, you may actually even draw some who are far from Christ to Christ. Mm. I think when you brought up Rodney Stark and the history of Christianity, especially in the early centuries, that was one draw to 
towards Christianity. They'd say, well, yeah, we may not like them as people, but they sure do a lot of good. Maybe there's something important about their message. And so it may actually be, our, our doing well may actually become an evangelistic strategy as mm-hmm. we do that consistently over time. 1 Peter 2, 15, it's a great verse, a good reminder. Um, do you have a life verse? That was the question I was going to ask you. Oh. Uh, you, I think, if I had to choose one. Yeah. You know, I did Campus Crusade in college. Right. Or Crew right. now, as they're right. called. Uh, and that was a big deal to them. Yeah. So, I th- I found Galatians 1.10 to be, to be good for me. Yeah. Uh, am I now trying to please men or God? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a slave of Christ. Mm. Because I have... Uh, I think there's part of me that I, I like people to like me. I don't know who right, doesn't, right. but I really, you know, yeah. I, I want to please people. Mm-hmm. I want people to like me. So to realize that, no, I'm called to serve the Lord first. Yeah. That's a, that's a good reminder. And it's set in the context for Paul there of faithfulness to proclaiming the gospel, hmm. no matter what. Hmm. In the face of really anything and everything, he will be faithful to the gospel. So yeah. it's a good reminder for me, a good challenge. It's a challenging verse to me yeah. to actually yeah. serve the Lord, be faithful to the gospel, not get, not kowtow to people's opinions. Yeah, that's good. Amen. Well, um, First Wait, Peter 2. 15. What's your life verse? Oh, <laughs> come on, man. You know, I know. I knew when I asked you that, you'd ask me that. I don't really have like a verse that I'm really drawn to. I mean, to. literally, your father and pastor... Said, I, I feel like I on should. Sunday, yeah. you needed one. He did say I needed one. You can't just use his. I want to use his. You right got to come now. up with your own. Well, here's the problem. Be your own man, Tyler. When I read First Peter, um, there's just so much there that draws me in. You can't use. It's not a life book. But it's then when I read First John one, I just want that to be on my mind. So I just love, uh, not First John. I just love John one, John chapter one. I mean the whole, just the whole. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't know where this life verse thing came about, but it's certainly not a life chapter either. I know, but and then when we read Ephesians, I'm like, well, I love Ephesians. I need to get one from Ephesians. I want to pick one of these from I Ephesians. I just love the whole Bible so much. I just can't pick. I'm too indecisive right now. Well, I think another great opportunity for our listeners to respond is to choose Tyler's life verse for him. If you have a... <laughs> A recommendation of a life verse that I ought to choose. I'd love to hear that. There are just so many good ones. This is all. This is how I'm going to grid my devotional life I for wish the I next had a, week. I wish I had a better life verse. I know. I wish, I wish I you had a better, better answer. answer too. And in fact, tune in next time, and I may yeah. have one. Probably the most disappointed I've ever been in you. Well, that's all the time <laughs> we have for today. <laughs> so come back next week, and maybe you'll find out my life verse. How about that? That'd be great. All right. Thanks for your time, John. Thanks.